0: Welcome to 10-Minute Tech Column. This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and I'm happy to welcome today's guest.
1: Hi, this is Jack Malasani calling from the galactic headquarters of the LavaCon conference currently in Long Beach, California. I am the president of ProSpring Technical Staffing, an agency that specializes in content professionals. I also produced the LavaCon conference on content strategy. to will be virtual this year in October. And finally, I am the author of Be the Captain of Your Career, which hit number five on Amazon's career and resume bestseller list.
0: Jack has joined us today to talk about trends and technical communication. And also to tell us about the upcoming LavaCon conference that he runs. And as a bonus for 10-minute Techcom listeners, you can get $100 off LavaCon registration with the promo code hashtag TeamWeber. That's Weber with one B. You can find more information at LavaCon.org. I hope you enjoy the interview thanks for coming on the podcast today, Jack. I really appreciate you joining us to talk about tech comm and marketing and trends in tech comm. And that's always something I'm interested in is kind of where is the field going? So I guess let's just start with a really broad question. What trends do you see coming in tech comm? Well, the first trend I, I would have to
1: say is our titles are becoming more splintered than ever before. used to be an argument between tech comm and tech writer, but then it was content writer, and then it was content communicator, and then it was information engineer. And now we're getting into content strategy and UX design, which stands for user experience, the people who write the content that goes into the software. And those of us who have worn many hats go, no, we've been doing that for years. That's one thing. Some people look at it as a negative. I tend to look at it as a positive. And as a recruiter, I give people the advice that look at what they're looking for. If they're really looking for a technical writer or an instructional designer, and you've done that. If they're looking for title, senior instructional designer, then you say your title is senior instructional designer. If they're looking for an information architect, then you're, by golly, your title's information architect. Now, I'm not saying use a title that you've never done I wouldn't call yourself a senior UX designer if you never designed a UX in your life. But keep in mind, and this is Jack's definition, I will label it as my definition. My definition of a resume is a resume is just a vehicle that shows a you match what the reader's looking for. And that's all it is. A job application is just a vehicle that shows that you match what they're looking for. And we can take this a step further and say an interview is just a vehicle that shows that you match what the reader's looking for. You need to keep in line the first law of tech writing, which is know thy audience. And every time you sit down in front of a new person, oh, have you ever been asked the question, so tell me about yourself? What I normally do in an interview is sit down and go, okay, well, first, tell me a little bit about what you're looking for. So I'll have a context in which to answer your questions.
0: It gives you right away a sense of kind of how to match yourself honestly with what the organization wants. Correct. Because I
1: guarantee the head of HR is looking for something different than the head of quality, than the head of marketing, or even tech support.
0: So with all these titles, is this... Because I wonder about this too, you know, because even locally we have a lot of different titles for the same thing. Is it that the field is fragmenting into smaller and smaller specialties or is it new names for the same thing? Or What does this p- proliferation of titles mean?
1: My first answer was going to be yes. Let, let's take a step further and kind of look at the bigger picture. In the olden days where we had to explain enter your name in the name field, enter your address and hit tab. That documentation was needed. Well, it's not needed anymore. Used to be, we needed some online help. Okay, here is, enter your type of accounting here. Is it this or this, where you give them a choice? And those fields can be localized into various languages. So now we're part of the product development team, not an afterthought thing. Oh, we're shipping next Monday. We should probably write a manual we used to have these things called business analysts, which would write up the requirements for the software developers to develop. But then there was a whole field of user interface design that popped up, saying, "Wait a minute, we just can't throw words on a screen. These have to be there have to be human factors and uh, white space. And they started drawing wireframes, but again, just for the software. And someone said, no, 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 we need to actually exactly design. words that go in there. Hence, this term came up of UX designer or UX writer. Truthfully, we've been doing that for 40 years, but we weren't specializing in it. It wasn't called that. So to answer your question, is it new? Yes. Have we been doing it all along? Yes. It's just a way of people identifying the various sub skills within the overall communication
0: field. So part of this is that technical writers and communicators are getting credit for the stuff they've been doing all along these new titles well yes and no there's a 2 part answer to that you said are technical communicators getting
1: credit for stuff they've already done under these new titles ah if you have under these new titles you're getting the recognition if you don't have that new title you don't it's perceived value if you're perceived to be integral part of the product development team boy you're important in tech writing writing a book about a product that's already been created And the only thing holding us up from shipping it is your manual. Well, you're looked at as a commodity, something to be acquired for the lowest possible price, given acceptable level of quality, which is why I tell people you need to be perceived as close to the beginning of that product development lifecycle as you can be.
0: Well, and that's good news, right? Because tech writers have been frustrated for years and UX people to the extent that they overlap or don't you know, that they get brought in too late and they can't actually really help make the product better or more user friendly or more user centered or whatever. Is this a reflection of bringing in that sort of user centered tech writing perspective sooner in the product life cycle?
1: Mm, I'm going to give it a qualified yes, but it's not because that we've been asking to do it. It's being pulled up from the top up, not being pushed from the bottom up.
0: So if I am a tech writer right now and I want, I'm seeing all these ads coming out, information designer, information architect, UX designer, what do I do to position myself to be successful or to be eligible for these roles? You mentioned kind of you know shifting my title around within reason, but is there a sense where I need to pick up new skills or what's, what's the approach here? It's a little bit of both. And I'm gonna quote a story
1: um, from Sharon Burton. When the economy crashed the last time, she realized when she did an introspective of what she wants to do for a living, that she really enjoys being at the intersection of people and technology. However, just writing online help topics didn't do it for her anymore. So she went back and trained how to be a content strategist and repositioned herself because these days companies don't want just user manuals or online help. They need blogs and webinars and distance learning and 3D models. She goes, that's what they're spending money on and they need help to do it right Right. So moving into content strategy wasn't just calling myself by a new title. It was retraining myself so I could offer the very skills companies need as the ground beneath them changed under their feet. So to answer your question, look at what an IX developer does. If you've already been doing that, call yourself an IX developer. If you're doing something like that or don't have a sample, well then go take an IX design class. There's many, many, many out there. You've all at the UX Writing Exchange, I believe the name is his organization, teaches UX writing classes that are just fantastic. So a third piece of advice I say is look at all the jobs, use a job site like Google Jobs or Indeed and search for all the jobs that have the word content in it and then do a spreadsheet. How many of them are called you know, content designers? How many are called UX designers? How many of them are called UI designers? How many of them are called experienced designers? And then take the one that has the most job openings in your area, synthesize what all those people are looking for, and if there's something that they want that you don't have, then get that. And I'll give you an example real quick. A lot of people ask me, I just got a certificate in technical writing. Should I get my degree in technical writing? And my viewpoint has always been, if you've got a certificate in technical writing, you know, the difference between a bullet list and numbered list between, you know, introductory text and action text and how to create a table. That pretty much teaches you everything you need to know to get a job as a technical writer. Keep in mind, companies are looking for up to like five things. What are you? Ditch digger, chef, tech writer. Do you have the tools we need? If they need a two-week contract with someone who are a frame maker, they want you to already know it. Three, do you have experience in my industry? Networking companies want people with networking backgrounds so you understand what about you start to write. Fourth, how senior are you? And fifth, can I afford you? And the fifth one is the only thing not covered in a resume. So, similarly to using Google Jobs to find out what tech writing jobs are your area, find out what industries are hiring tech writers. There's a lot of biotech around DC and San Diego, right? There's a lot of semiconductor around the Bay Area and Idaho. So if there are like 25 companies around you that are doing microchip documentation, well, I would take a class, not not in technical writing, I would start taking classes in microchip design take a programming language class like c c plus or net something online because everything's going online and i can give you two very short stories that reflect this one is my degrees in computer engineering and i was working in tech writing job documenting an api application program interface how you can get data out of this database and in this company there were two teams two ways to get information out of this database you can either walk through one person at a time i want like joe jones and his household information, or you can send a query and say, send me everybody in California that makes more than 10,000 a year, that has more than two children. And that's two completely different interfaces. And being the sole tech writer, I was the only one documenting both sides of the system. And because I can read code and write my own code samples, I noticed that in both their code samples, one side's um, defaulted A is black. And the other one started out with A is white. And I knew once these two modules got to integration testing, that would fail, miserably fail. So I got both leads into a room, lured them in with brownies, and pointed out the two things going, you know what, I couldn't document this either way, but you guys need to pick a standard and go with it. That right there saved that company hundreds of thousands of dollars in work that they would have had to redo had that gone to integration testing, right? So part of what we do as tech writers, especially in a technology environment, is we're the only person who sees every single piece of that puzzle before it gets to integration. So I would say it behooves you and how often do you get to use the word behoove? When you've got the chance, you've got to be able to use it. It behooves you to know enough about what you're documenting that you can spot errors in it. So if you're documenting C++ code, take a class in C++. If you're in a Scrum or Agile environment, take a class in how, what, all the parts of Scrum and Agile. That, one, will allow you to do your job, and two, it won't make the, I'm not going to say engineers look down on you, but they often think, oh, you couldn't possibly understand this as well as an engineer. Well, that's when you snap your fingers and go, well, guess what? I am an engineer, so give it to me.
0: Yeah, and when you can speak their language, it just it smooths things over and it kind of gets a little more respect.
1: Exactly. Same thing in the financial industry. Take your trading class, become a, a stockbroker. If you don't want to be a stockbroker, but then you can then document stockbroker policies and procedures. You're not constantly going, what does this mean? What does this mean? And you can easily close, hold on, this violates
0: the Hatch Act, we can't do this. And then suddenly everyone's going to be very surprised, yeah, that the tech writer is saying that. And if there's a
1: layoff coming, who are they going to lay off? The person solving all your problems? No.
0: So can we jump back to something you said a few minutes ago? Because I was interested. You're saying these companies are producing, you know, webinars, blog posts, well, you know, all this content. What has driven this huge drive for more and more content from the company side? Why why do they want all of this content?
1: Okay. That's a five part answer. I'll try to keep it to three. It used to be you bought a product because your next door neighbor bought that lawnmower. So you bought that lawnmower with the rise of the internet. We could start researching things on our own along came crowdsourcing. So where people could not only rate a product, but comment on the product. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) The third thing that came along was when companies started putting their user manuals online people could start reading how easy it is to set up this item. And here's a real-life example. I was documenting an LCD projector for Epson, and it got reviewed in PC Magazine. And the review said, and I quote, The concise manual made setup easy.
0: Wow, that's great. Yeah, you rarely see a shout out to the documentation in a product review, but that's terrific.
1: You better believe that's in my um, portfolio. And when I'm talking about my bill right, I go, do you have any idea how many hundreds of thousands of projectors I probably helped Epson sell? Oh, yeah. I could double my fees and still make you a bundle. I've tried that. It hasn't worked yet. Someday.
0: Someday it will work. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but how many projectors didn't get returned because the documentation was so clear too. Exactly. Oh, can I riff on what you just said
1: real quick? My uh, associate friend had this particular brand of bread maker and it was just so horrible to set up and use. She took it back and there on the shelf behind the counter was four more of the exact same brands. So clearly that had bad product user documentation. Canon had brought my company in to redo their documentation because it was clearly bad. They understood it was bad. And at the time, the user just tried to put in the plug and play without loading the drivers. It was so badly set up that they would actually have to call tech support and edit the system registry. So they made a few changes and we took their documentation, you know, that easy fold roadmap like documentation that, that goes from like, Chicago to O'Hare, we changed it to a box top that said, stop! And a big sign, putting the CD in first. And after we did that implementation, tech support calls went down 95% in the six weeks they relaunched that product. Again, documented that in my portfolio. So finally, there's also, I see a convergence of marketing and tech comm. One is they want to see the user manual before they buy it. But now check this out. Say a person has a GoPro head camera, and it used to be if you needed to replace the Nikod battery or order a new one, you would go to their tech support page, log in so they know which one you have, and click on order a new battery. Well, the system knows you and knows what you do, so it sends off an interrupt to the marketing system, so there, right next to the tech support, is a marketing pane that says, hey, needing a new battery? Here's a coupon to upgrade to the XP 1000 for just a tad more So another upselling it's tech support, but there's also marketing content and it's probably two completely different people writing that content, but it's being seamlessly displayed in the user interface.
0: And as I understand it, that's kind of the heart of content strategy is that all this content is unified and it seems like it's all doing the same thing and written by the same company towards the same ends. Correct. The way I describe content
1: strategy is take a company like Cisco Systems that has 120 products, each of which needs an installation guide, a sales brochure, a tech support page, maybe a how-to video, multiply that by the 27 languages they translate into worldwide, it would be impossible to keep that all around Microsoft Word. So some clever person will take all that content and put it into a database and tag it so you can spit out where you want, when you want, on the device you want, in the language you want, in the country you want. A person who figures out how to do that is a content strategist. So my conference, LavaCon, is on content strategy and digital publishing.
0: Can you tell us a little more? That's coming up. And as we're recording right now, it's uh, right at the beginning of September. That's coming up at the end of October. What can we expect from LavaCon?
1: Nothing like you've ever seen before. This is our 18th annual conference.
0: My conference started
1: in Hawaii. That's why it's called Lava Con. And for the first few years, we featured local music and local dancing and local culture and local food. When we brought the conference to the mainland U.S. after 2008, after the economy kind of hiccuped, we wanted to keep that aloha spirit. So we went to fun, walkable places like New Orleans, French Quarter and the Gaslamp District of San Diego or downtown Las Vegas, not the Strip, downtown, or even Portland. Portland has an amazing food and music and jazz scene. One year in Bourbon Street, did a parade down to where we were going. The next year we were in Vegas and we had to do a parade to get to where we were going in there. And a um, tradition was started. This year we were supposed to go back into New Orleans and had the parade lined up and the drag show lined up for uh, the Not Faint of Heart and a storytelling night lined up and then COVID hit. So we're pivoting to virtual, but we're doing it with the New Orleans flair. One of the things that I'm finding, I've been to virtual conferences, I've spoken at virtual conferences, and what's really missing is that feeling we get when we finally see each other in person once a year at a conference, you know, and can catch up and how are you doing and what are you working on? So we really want to maintain that relationship, that camaraderie. And the fun parts because I'll tell you, Sarah O'Keefe, the content strategy track at a conference and you got the management track, she coined the term the hallway track because so many introductions were made passing somebody in the hallway. And then so many conversations were done over drinks in the bar on karaoke night that got leads out of them once people let their hair down. We are keeping
0: all of that. Okay. How are you keeping all of that? How are you replicating? That's really interesting to me. How are you replicating the hallway and the drinks? Because I know what you're talking about. A lot of the conference happens outside of the official you know, presentations and everything. How do you simulate that in in a virtual world? Well, first thing we're going to do is, have you ever
1: heard of a hurricane
0: drink in New Orleans? Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: It's served in a hurricane shaped glass. Everyone's going to get a swag box that contains things that they're going to use during the conference. This is not going to be a sit and look at something conference. This is group participation, like all my events are. So in your swag box will be a, a hurricane glass, hurricane mix, and a paper drink umbrella and at, during the welcome reception, we are all going to hold up our drinks to our Zoom meeting so we can all drink at the same time. If you want to talk to one person in particular, you can start a one-on-one Zoom with them and just hang out. We're going to start. We were supposed to start the conference with a drum circle from a local Zydeco drum band. We're doing it. They're going to be drumming live from New Orleans, and everybody at the conference is going to get drumsticks and can drum along from wherever they are. When we do our second-line jazz parade, we normally have a tambourine. I found a source of tambourines. Everybody's going to get a tambourine. And when we parade, it's either going to be around your office, around your living room. I want the kids involved, your spouse involved. This is instead of going, not, no, honey, I'm on the phone. Not, no, I'm on the, honey, I'm on the phone. I go, nope. now we're on the phone. Come on in and make it such an ex- a, a, a joyful change from staring at a Zoom screen. There's other things that I, I don't want to just burn up your bandwidth time with, but it's it's going to be fun. All the information is going on our website, it's lavacon.org. And I think we have a discount code for your listeners,
0: don't we? We do. Is it hashtag Team Weber? Or... Hashtag Team Weber, all one word. And that gets you $100 off
1: conference tuition.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes too. Sweet. That sounds awesome. I know people are looking forward to That's what, October 20th? 20... Uh, 25th. The pre-conference workshops start two days early. Okay, 25th to the 28th. Great. Um, hey, let me ask you one more question before I let you go. If I understand your business correctly... You are a project manager, but do you also, do you hire tech writers as well?
1: Yes. I also own a
0: staffing company that we do both contract and perm tech writers. Okay. So you have talked about this thing of, you know, your perspective of you, you know, showing the fit with the company, but you also are the, the interviewer and the resume reader when you're in that role. What kinds of things are you looking for from tech writers that you hire? So, keep in mind that my
1: definition of a resume is it's a vehicle that shows that you match what I'm looking for. So, say I'm looking for a tech writer. Here's something I often get it on Friday night, I'll get an email from a manager going, Oh, we have somebody who's supposed to start Monday. You can't start. Can you get me a contractor who can start Monday who needs to be able to use FrameMaker and conditional text in an automotive industry? I go, Sure, let me get that. So I'll send a quick email to all my people. Go, hey, 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 hot, hot, hot. Opening that starts Monday, on-site in San Jose. Send me three things. Your resume, a summary of your experience with uh, conditional text and frame maker, and if you've ever worked in the automotive or industrial fields. The people who send me an email back going, hi, attaches my resume. I've done three years with conditional text in the automotive, industrial, and legal fields. When perfect, that's all I need. Off you go to the next person. What I hate is somebody on Indeed going, apply, apply. Okay, listen, if you can't follow a one-sentence instruction, how can I possibly expect you to write a 1,000-page procedures guide? And I know it's convenient for the things to say apply. And then I have also been seeing a lot of automatic applies where the website just submit to you because it saw a word in a job that was in your resume and submit to you without even asking if you wanna be submitted. The other hand has an AI that will compare your resume to the job description and will automatically knock you out of the running if it doesn't think you're a good enough match. And so now you've got a robot submitting to a robot who's rejecting your resume before any human has put their eyes on it. Again, this is another whole conversation.
0: So what you want is somebody who, and this this echoes what I say in my classes too, so I'm always happy to hear this, someone who customizes their materials directly to the needs and the request from the person who's doing the hire. Correct. Correct. Add to
1: that a summary of how your experience matches the job requirements.
0: So is that a cover letter? Is that in the email? How does that show up? Excellent question. I do that for my own
1: customers, and half the time they don't read it because we we are so used to getting really, really fluffy, meaningless cover letters. So what you can do or what your listeners can do to get around that is make the very first page of your resume your cover letter.
0: Oh, I see, so it's like all in the same PDF.
1: It's in the same PDF. Now, they may just scroll past it and get to the meat of it, but at least their eyes saw it go by. If I got a cover letter that says, I'm applying for job one, two, three, four, five, you want 10 years of experience, I have 20. You want experience in structured authoring, I know DITA, XML, and three front-end development tools. You want experience in an applicable field, my degree is in, in computer engineering. I'm available Monday and Tuesday to interview. You can reach me at this number. If I got that, wow, wow, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Bob, come see this. You may go or just go right onto the hiring manager at this point. They may not even read your uh, resume. But when you do open the resume, make sure it shows that at the top, what you just wrote.
0: That's a good example. And again, this is something I tell my students is that a great resume and cover letter, it's almost like a magical fit, but it, the person who wrote the resume and cover letter did that very carefully and deliberately to make that other person go, this is exactly what I'm looking for.
1: On a related word of advice, don't use resume writing services. As a writer, your resume should be an example of your work. and should use action verbs and say what you did I can always tell a resume that's been written by someone who knows nothing about our industry, nothing about you.
0: So it's your, it's your first writing sample that goes out. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I used to say that engineers could get away with typos in their resumes, but technical writers cannot. I don't even believe that anymore. I had an engineering manager that I submitted a candidate to who got back to me and said, listen, if she can't write two pages of error-free resume... How could I possibly expect her to write 10,000 lines of error-free
0: code? Well, hey, I really enjoyed talking to you, Jack. We covered a lot of ground. (laughs) So I hope uh, everybody finds something interesting there. Um, And again, give us the LavaCon website one more time.
1: LavaCon.org. One of my attendees sent me an email that described my conference to a T. She said, one of the attractions of LavaCon to me is how sassy, for lack of a better term, it is. It gets big names from major companies covering really important stuff, but there's also a sense of playfulness. If anyone's interested in that, go to the website, check it out, and we'd love to see you there.